Good morning. Get my pack back on here. All right, so I want to show you my purple fretless bass. All right, I bought this a few years ago, and when I brought it home, I showed it to Joe, and she said, well, that's a really interesting shade of purple. And I thought, well, that's interesting, because when I bought it in the store, it looked black. But sure enough, in the house that day, it looked purple. Well, the reality is if you have it in direct sunlight or certain uh, types of fluorescent light, it's, it's black. Black is its true color. Now, it, I think in the lights that we have here in the sanctuary, it looks different colors. I've, it might look gray, it might look purple, it might look black. But black is its true color. Um, you know, I've heard similar stories about people who've uh, gone to buy a part for their car at a, at a junkyard thinking they've had a, a right you know, fender or something and they think, they have the part and they put it on, they drive it out in the sunlight and they realize they got a different shade of blue or green or whatever. But true light has a way of exposing what darkness tends to conceal. And this is the truth of Paul's instruction at the start here of Ephesians 5. Now we've shared that here in chapters 4 through 6 of Ephesians, Paul is setting down the standards of conduct which God requires for those who have come to faith in Jesus Christ. And this is how we should walk or how we should live. Um, and this includes things that we should put off and things that we should put on. So I'm putting up this image again of the aspen trees from last week that Pastor Stacy shared. These are the trees that have the common root ball because this is, this is who we are. This is us. This, we are an interdependent community, community of believers, a new humanity which is what Ephesians is about. Now, remember, throughout this entire letter, the unity of the new humanity is the goal. But an interdependent, uni interdependent unity cannot be achieved if character isn't addressed. So let's also keep this image in mind this morning. We're going to use this a lot. These old patterns uh, of, of sin on the left here, they threaten to destroy relationships. And this is the, the, the relationships in the new humanity that Paul desires for us. So we concluded last week that both verses 1 and 2 of Ephesians 5, that we are to follow God's example and walk in the way of love. Now we begin to look at how that way of love looks, how, what it looks like, and what it doesn't look like. So things come in groups of three here in Ephesians 5. The first group of three things happen in verse 3, where Paul says, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. So let's briefly take a look at these first three, three things this morning. Sexual immorality. This is a Greek word, porneia. Uh, it's defined as sexual activity outside the covenant of marriage. Now the second word that is translated as impurity, that can actually mean uncleanliness in the physical sense, but that's not how Paul is using it here. Paul's using it in a moral sense. And what Paul here, Paul means here is impurity in terms of your thoughts or lustful thoughts. Greed, the, the last word is covetedness. This is the desire to have more or avarice. Now Paul is grouping greed with sex outside the covenant of marriage and lustful thoughts. Now why would he do that? Well greed actually is connected with the sexual sins. In, in, in the sense that it is a desire to have, have more of anything. Uh, theologian Klein Snodgrass states that greed motivates all other sins. It's the highest act of revolt away from God. All three of these sins 
listed in this first, this first group are sins of elevating your own needs above the needs of the others in the new humanity. And Paul says that these things are improper for God's holy people. And so if you're going to be the new humanity here where we are, and most definitely here in the new heavens and the new earth, there, there's no room for these things in that place. So Paul then introduces a second group of three things. Obscenity, foolish talk, and coarse or vulgar joking. Now, the English words that are, are used for these three things in the NIV are really about as good as it gets. These are all sins of the tongue. All right, This is what comes out of your mouth. So obscenity means shameful speech or, or filthiness. Foolish talk or speech from a fool means one who is uh, lack, meaning one who is lacking understanding. And scholars actually believe in this case that it is sexual in nature or salacious talk. And then the Greek word that's translated as the third thing, which is coarse joking. Now that's actually a positive word everywhere else in the Greek outside the New Testament. But here when it's used in the New Testament, it's negative when Paul uses it. Now it, it suggests to turn, to turn a phrase or on a, a double entendre. Something that's said that is seemingly innocuous, but turned to have an, an indecent intent. So in our 21st century culture, it's full of this type of humor. You know, you turn on any late night TV show, it's not going to take long for you to encounter a double entendre, usually of a sexual nature. Something innocent that alludes to something else, and it's said for the sake of humor. Now, Paul is saying it's out of place here. It's out of place. It's certainly going to be out of place here, but it's out of place here as well. But he offers an alternative to these sins of the tongue. And that alternative is thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. Paul believes, actually, in, in, in his letters, thanksgiving should be the basic attitude of Christ followers. So, as I pondered the connection here between verses 3 and 4 in this text, and it occurred to me that this second group of three sins of the tongue really relate to the, the sin of impurity, the second thing in the first group which was the sin of the thoughts, thoughts of your mind. Again, scholar Klein Snodgrass says, any, such, any use of such language is proof that that sin has already taken up residence in your mind. So essentially, if it comes out your mouth, it's in your mind. Okay, so now we need to get to some really heavy stuff here that starts in verse 5. Paul says, for this you can be sure. And what Paul means by that is he's saying, you already know this. No immoral, impure, or greedy person. Such a person is an idolater. Now notice, that's a repeat of those first, the first three things in that first group. No person has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. All right, fun stuff here, right? This is heavy. Nothing light about any of this. So let's, let's tackle the obvious question right up front. So is Paul saying here that if we have come to know Christ and we engage in sexual immorality or impurity or greed, that we're going to be excluded from our inheritance in the kingdom of God? And, and if he's saying that, how do we reconcile that with what he said in chapter 2? By grace we're saved through faith. Or what we just saw, you know, he described in chapter 4 of us being sealed 
with the Holy Spirit? Well, pastor and theologian Stacy Littlefield said once in a sermon, Paul is not saying that these things will exclude us from our inheritance or that the seal of the Holy Spirit will be removed from us. He's saying that the sins of sexual immorality, impurity, and greed characterize those who do not know Christ, not those who do. Therefore, they should be far from us in our way of life. In other words, if that's how those who are not part of God's kingdom are behaving, you ought to not even have a hint of such things in your life because you do belong to, the, to God's kingdom. So verse, verse 5 is a dangerous verse to pluck out of context. Commentator Mark Roberts says it's better to read this verse really as a promise. This is not who you are. If you fall, if you slip, and you engage in this kind of behavior, you're not defined by it. He adds, though, however, if your life is continually characterized by this, you need to ask yourself if your response to the grace of God is what he intends. Paul continues in verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words. So, just like last week, we can conclude, if Paul's having to say something about it, as Pastor Stacy shared last week, if he has to say it here, we know that it's an issue in Ephesus, and frankly, I would say, throughout the history of the church, we know that there are going to be people who try to lower the standards of the high sexual ethic of Jesus and the apostles. And Paul is convinced that it's based on deception, meaning it's not reality. So being able to do whatever I want with my body outside its design for its covenantal commitment is deception. I'm deceived. It will invite destruction into my life. And it's precisely this type of behavior that's, that's ruined this current age, and it's why God is moving on from this age. Paul sees, then speaks of the wrath of God coming on those who are disobedient. So again, uh, scholar Tim Mackey states that when we see, we see Paul use that term, wrath of God, you know, we're tempted to assume that what God is saying is, I don't like that, so I will destroy that. And so he kind of runs with that. So he asks a provocative question. So how does God destroy something? How does God destroy someone? And the pattern is God giving people whatever it is they want, and they destroy themselves. You know, God handing people over to their own self-destruction. You know, the primary Pauline text uh, addressing the wrath of God comes from Romans 1, where Paul says, therefore God gave them over to their sinful desires of their heart and to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. How does God destroy something or someone? He lets them have what they want. Paul continues in verse 7, Paul says, do not be partners with them. And that word be is important. Be means to become or to enter into the condition of becoming a fellow participant or to be identified with them. Now, this does not mean or imply that believers should have no association with unbelievers, but rather we're not to participate in their lifestyle. Now, Paul gives very similar instructions to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 5. Verse 9, he says, I, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the people of the world who are immoral or greedy or swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave the world. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister but is sexually immoral or greedy or an idolater or slanderer or drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such a person. You know, the emphasis of 
Paul's instruction to the church in Corinth was someone claiming to be a brother and sister in Christ, yet who's participating in these things. Now, the church throughout history too often when we think of separation, we think of geographical distance rather than distinction and lifestyle. But we look at Christ's example, Jesus, Jesus was a friend of sinners. He was actually the scribes and the Pharisees whom he most often condemned. So I think too often in the historical church, in the church today, we do the opposite. We tolerate inappropriate Christian lifestyles, but we separate ourselves from non-Christians. Paul continues in verse 8, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. Now notice that Paul doesn't say you were once in darkness, but he says you were darkness, meaning you were the embodiment of darkness, darkness personified. And likewise, he doesn't say you were in the light, but he says you are light. Now darkness signifies sin, but it means sin defined both in terms of the realm of sin and sin's power. But in contrast, Jesus says of himself in John 8, 12, that I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. But what's interesting is Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 13, that you are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. So we continue in verse 9. Paul mixes his metaphors, which he often does, in verse 9, and he says, as light, we bear fruit. Light bears fruit. For the fruit of light consists of goodness, righteousness, and truth, which is our last and our best set of three things this morning. But notice that, that verse 9 places these three things in parentheses. You know, in the previous verse, Paul has said, he's referred, has exhorted the reader to live, to walk as children of light. And now this parenthetical thought explains the product of that light. So let's take a look at these three qualities. Goodness, okay, this refers to moral excellence. Uh, this is the same word Paul uses uh, for the fruit of the Spirit over in Galatians uh, 5.22. It's best described, I would say, as love and action. Righteousness, this is the idea of living in integrity before God and, and mankind. In 1 John, John says, whoever righteous, practices righteousness is born of him. And truth, truth is the absence of deception or falsehood or hypocrisy. The fruit of light, goodness righteousness and truth lived out in front of a before a dark world that's going to raise questions and those questions have an answer and the answer is the gospel the gospel of Jesus so to walk as children of light back to verse 8 we need to perform these positive actions of of goodness righteousness and truth so if you're engaged in mission during the 97% of your waking hours that you're not in this church building or involved in church activities, uh, you're going to have opportunities to engage in goodness, righteousness, and truth. And the hope and prayer is, is that this generates questions that can be only answered by the hope of the gospel. 1 Peter 3.15 says, always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. And Jesus, again, says in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 13, let your light shine before others in such a way that they might see your good works and, and, and glorify your Father who's in heaven. And verse 10 continues, and find out what pleases the Lord. So 
Let's remove this parenthetical description from verse 9, and let's just read the last part of verse 8 and verse 10 together. Live as children of the light and find out what pleases the Lord. The scholars state that verses 8 through 10 are, are really a brief summary of Paul's theology to live continually in the Lord, to be aware of him, to be determined by him, and to discerning, always be discerning what pleases him. So just like children often seek to please and gain the approval of their parents, children of light should have the same childlike desire to learn what pleases the Lord. So a question for all of us, how much time do we give to how our lives can be more pleasing to our Lord. Verse 11, though, instructs us to have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. So that last part, it might seem uncomfortable, right? But Paul's indication is that is something that will please our Heavenly Father. Now, despite any attempts you might have to isolate yourself, you can't help but be around those two groups of sin and live in our Western culture. And the point isn't isolation, but rather it's not to partner with the deeds of darkness. But verse 11 also states we're called to expose those deeds of darkness for what it is. Now, just like my base, light reveals what darkness conceals. Darkness conceals sin and even promotes it. Light exposes sin and thus living as children of, the, of light has this function of exposing Sin, the sins of those in darkness, which I would say is the first and fundamental step in evangelism. So scholars differ on this, but I don't think that verse 11 is about exposing believers who are sinning. I don't think that's what this passage is. Paul handles that elsewhere several places in his letters. I think this is about people who do not yet know Christ. And the, the act of exposing, it involves convicting and rebuking, yeah, but, it, I, but it's not always done with words. I think what Paul is getting here is the act of um, living as children of light inherently exposes, it inherently shines a light, or rather it shines the light on sin. So there's a story of a man who went golfing with Reverend Billy Graham. And he was in a foursome with Billy Graham. And, and at the end of the round of the golf, uh, of golf, someone asked that man what he thought of Billy Graham. And, he, and this guy was angry and he says, I don't need anybody like Billy Graham ramming religion down my throat. It was later discovered that Billy Graham hadn't said one word to this man about faith or religion or spirituality, but rather it was his very life, his very presence that rebuked him. See, if all things become visible when they're exposed to the light, what effect does your life have on your workplace, on your classroom, on your friendships, on your family? Paul's ultimate point is that we are to hold all things up to the light of Scripture and the testimony in Christ empowered by the Spirit of God to expose the darkness. And, and verse 13 expands on this thought. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible. And everything that is illuminated becomes light. And that, that word exposed can also mean to convince. To convince. And, and the person who is exposed and convinced by the light is transformed. And this is a picture of conversion. People are exposed. They allow themselves to be revealed, and then they become light. And then Paul concludes this section stating, that is why it's said, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So this is a traditional poem or a hymn 
It's about the call of the messianic age for those who are dead and into, or summoned into the new resurrection life. So it's a combination of two passages from Isaiah, Isaiah 29 and Isaiah 19 and Isaiah 61. And I love how Dr. Tim Mackey has a definition of poetry. Poetry is using fewer words to generate an overabundance of meaning through those words. Poetry is using fewer words to generate an overabundance of meaning through those words. So the Greek word that's actually translated as sleeper here can metaphorically mean to yield to both sloth and sin and to be indifferent toward one's salvation. To yield to sloth and sin and to be indifferent toward one's salvation. So this, this poem invites us believers to do something. It's saying that if you perpetuate those first two sets of three sins, that those sinful behaviors back in verses 3 and 4, you're a contradiction. You're, you're a walking contradiction. These behaviors are a contradiction to your identity. You're living like you're asleep in the dark. And he's saying you need to be raised. As we said earlier, you, you need to have the apocalypse, the revelation, the revelation of who you are. So, as we stated, this is about the old humanity versus the new. We, when, we, when we do the things that we should take off, uh, we do them, and this is as believers, when we do those things that we should take off, we do them for a reason. We do them to meet a need. And there are new humanity practices that we should put on that actually meet that need better than the old. So I want to wrap this up with a, with a final illustration. This comes from Steve Deneff, who's an author, and he's a pastor of College Wesleyan Church in Marion, Indiana. So when Christians choose to participate in the fruitless deeds of darkness, as Paul calls them in verse 11. We're actually choosing to meet a God-given need in an ungodly way. So in his book, More Than Forgiveness, Neff lays out the following construct. I just want to, I'd like to share this with you this morning. It, it, it help us understand why sometimes we as believers can return uh, to, to areas of sin in our life. So Deneff lays out five basic human needs each of us have. Those needs are significance, security, innocence, intimacy, and hope. There we are, we have them on the screen. Significance, security, innocence, intimacy, and hope. And the problem is that when we are darkness, before we come to Christ, it's natural to fulfill these needs, these, these desires, in foolish and ungodly ways. When we are converted to Jesus, we, we shouldn't expect the needs to change, but rather we discover the new the true way to meet those old familiar needs in new godly and more satisfying ways that are more consistent with the will of God. So Deneff contends that when, it, when a believer truly enjoys sinning, it's rarely the sin itself that they enjoy, but more likely it's the relief that they believe the sin will bring to these deeper, more basic human needs. So each of us is looking for significance, security, innocence, intimacy, and hope. But because of the fall, those in, both those in darkness and those who are in the light who participate in, in the, what Paul calls the fruitless deeds of darkness, we do the following. In order to find significance, we resort to power or pride because both power and pride make us feel good about ourselves. When we feel the need for security, we, we, we can hoard things, which is greed, or we seek guarantees since both of these things provide a sort of refuge to us. To recover innocence, we, we employ confession or therapy. 
To find intimacy, we engage in sex. And finally, to feel hope, we seek pleasure. Now, just like there are fruitless ways of gratifying our, our, our natural desires, there are pure and more satisfying as we, ways as well. I, I contend that these are the fruit of goodness, righteousness, and truth Paul is referencing in verse 9. What Paul is calling in our text the fruit of light, what is pleasing to the Lord. Now, Deneph in his book, he calls this holiness and states that anything sin can do, holiness can do better. So, in holiness, we find our significance not in power or pride, but in service and in humility. We find our security not in greed or guarantees, but in the simple trust in God for his provision, his provision for our future. To recover innocence, innocence, we have our sins forgiven and our sinful nature cleansed. And I would add that this is more than just cathartic confession, but this is godly sorrow and repentance, Paul, as Paul lays out in 2 Corinthians 7. We find um, intimacy as much in worship as we do in sex. Now this week, uh, I included Mark, a passage from Mark 12 in the daily scripture emails that, that are sent out where, where Jesus is having a conversation with the Sadducees and where he concludes that, that conversation by saying there will be no marriage in the resurrection. You can go back and look at that. But as Christ followers, we need to understand that God's gift of marital intimacy, which is the only biblically appropriate context for sex, is really just a foreshadow of something better in the new heavens and the new earth. Author Randy Alcorn states that sex was designed by God. And I don't expect him to discard it without replacing it with something better, something much better. And lastly, for the basic human need of hope, we now find redemption through the suffering of the cross. There's, there's so much I can say about that, but I have to leave that for now. That's another sermon entirely. But Paul has listed much in this passage that we should put off. Sexual immorality, impurity, greed, those sins of the tongue. Tim Mackey noted, uh, and, and you know, in Paul's letters, whenever Paul particularly speaks of putting off sins of sexual immorality, putting on, putting on thanksgiving quickly seems to follow. It, it's, it's as if there's something about being grateful that changes us. It's as if thanksgiving and gratitude are the antidote. Now, I don't have time this morning to exegete all, all the list of things that we should put on in verses 19 and 20, but just a teaser, uh, Megan's going to take a deeper dive into that, into the e-letter article that you're going to get on Tuesday related to Thanksgiving. But notice the primary thing listed at the end of this passage that we should put on in verse 20 is Thanksgiving. So this morning, as we come to this table, we come with thankful hearts. So... If you're here this morning and something in this passage has spoken to you, maybe if perhaps the, the Holy Spirit is convicting you or reiterating Paul's words in verse 14, that you need to rise up and stop dreaming that you can have peace while partnering with deeds in the darkness. So I want to say to anyone who's struggling with anything of what we talked about this morning today that we want you to see ECC as a place of grace. You know, we here at ECC, we seek to follow Christ's example. Now, every person that Jesus encountered that was struggling with sexual sin or with greed, he loved. Even the rich young ruler, the Gospel of Mark says that Jesus looked at him 
and loved him, even as he had to say hard things to him. We want you to know we love you, but I encourage you if, to talk to someone if you're struggling. I want to put this Aspen Grove up again because this is who we are. We're here for each other. You know, sin loses its power when it's brought into the light. And that often happens when we open our mouth and we bring it in the light. We speak it. And if that's true for you this morning, if you're here, I just encourage you, if you're part of ECC, find someone to talk to. Perhaps it's someone in your life group. Perhaps it's somebody that you serve alongside. Perhaps you might even want to talk to one of us on staff, one of the directors or one of the pastors. So let's go to the Lord in prayer before we come to the table this morning. God, we come to your table, God, this morning with thankful hearts. Lord, I thank you that your word says you are gracious, you are slow to anger, and you're good to all. And we, got to, we also know that your word says it's your kindness that leads us to repentance, Lord. God, I pray for all of us that we would have courage to shine a light on sin, whether it's in our own lives, by exposing the deeds, by speaking them into the light, maybe for the first time, or perhaps just to, to be a light as we engage with those in the world. God, help us to live into our new identity as children of light. Children of light who bear the fruit of goodness, righteousness, and truth. God, help us to be light. And God, to help us to be mindful that each day you are with us, and may our actions seek to please you. Amen.